the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Coming up this hour, we're going to talk about the coronavirus vaccine. What should we make of the Tom Cruise deep fake? And when my church was washed with butter, you're listening to The Common Good. everybody. Welcome to The Common Good here on AIM 1160, Hope for Your Life. My name is Brian Fromm. Really glad to have you with us on yet another sunny day here in Chicago. Folks, I am super excited by the weather, and I know uh, this is not a weather program. I don't know if there are such things as weather programs, but uh, I was watching the weather today, and there was one guy who said it could get to be 70 degrees early next week, at least into the 60s. And I heard that, and I get it. The old saying goes, if you're tired of the weather in Chicago, just wait an hour. But uh, I just got me excited. The sun is out today. It is warm and warming up. I could see the grass outside my house right now. And so I'm not going to apologize for being excited by this. So a beautiful Wednesday afternoon. I hope that you're having a great day so far. Glad to have you joining us with us. Uh, later on uh, next hour, we're going to have a fascinating guy coming on, Roger Olson, a professor of theology at Baylor University, and also the author of The Essentials of Christian Thought, Seeing Reality Through the Bible, through the Biblical Story. Uh, Roger is going to join us in the second hour. Until then, as I said, I'm going to run solo. I promise my last solo show this week, uh, going to be joined again by another guest host Thursday and Friday, one who has been around a couple times now, Aubrey Sampson, is going to join us on Thursday and Friday. So I'm very excited for that. But today, it's you, it's me, and we are running uh, together. Well, uh, two things as I was just reading through the news today, that's kind of how we like to start the show usually, is just what did I see in the news? What kind of stood out to me? And and I think the headline of yesterday uh, and into this morning was what President Biden had to say about the vaccines. Uh, here at NBCNews.com, uh, it says this. Uh, Biden, President Biden says U.S. will have enough coronavirus vaccine doses for every adult by end of May. The administration has been working to increase the supply and the distribution of the three authorized vaccines. This is such good news. President Joe Biden said Tuesday, the United States will have enough vaccines for every adult by the end of May, two months earlier than the administration had previously estimated. He said that the U.S. was able to speed up the timeline under a deal with Johnson and Johnson to accelerate production of its single dose vaccine, including an agreement in which Merck will assist Johnson and Johnson with its production and use of the Defense Production Act to secure necessary equipment and materials. Biden also said that the federal government will be working to make sure every teacher is able to get the first dose of the vaccine this month. And starting this week, he said teachers will be able to schedule an appointment at a local pharmacy for a vaccination, though he did not provide details as to how that they might be able to schedule those uh, sessions. I'll close with what he said here. President Biden said, our goal is to do everything we can to help every educator receive a shot this month, the month of March. Uh, I just like, like, let's celebrate. I don't care about your politics. I don't care about what you think about masks in this discussion or social distancing. If we're being too cautious or not cautious enough, 
That's not what this is about. Instead, I feel like all of us should be able to celebrate what's going on here. The fact that by the end of May, they're estimating that regardless of your age, regardless of your preconditions, regardless of whatever, you're going to have the opportunity to get this vaccine if you want it. Uh, that is kind of the game changer of that third vaccine coming online, the Johnson & Johnson vaccine and the Defense Production Act being used. And I just want to say that this feels like really good news. Like I said this yesterday with the coming of spring, the sunshine. But more than that, we have been mired, mired in this coronavirus, this COVID-19 pandemic for a year now. Uh, it will be this Sunday. Uh, this Sunday will be 52 weeks, I believe, since most of us churches had a normal Sunday morning service. Even for those of you meeting, since you last had a service where there were no masks and no signups or no whatever, uh, this will mark a year. And it's just been an unbelievably crazy year. And we could be Pollyanna about it and say, oh, yeah, there's things that we learned and there's things that were good. I got to spend more time with my family and this and that. But let's just be honest. This has been a terribly difficult year. People have died. Uh, there's been a lot of fear and just our lives have been turned upside down. And so just to get the news that there is a light at the end of the tunnel. And I don't care what you think about President Biden, President Trump, masks, vaccines, any of this. I, I think just to say that there is a light at the end of the tunnel and that most people seem to be thinking end of May, early summer, that no matter where you stand, life could start to go back to some normalcy. Even if you've been ready for normalcy, but you haven't been able to force it on other people, but that we'll be starting to see the herd immunity back through vaccinations and other things to be able to say that life is going to feel and look normal again for the summertime. I don't know about you, but I want to do I don't want to tear that apart. I don't want to parse that. I don't want to politicize it. I want to celebrate that and say, yes, thank you. Thank goodness. And I get it. You know, they're still telling us we need to be vigilant right now while the state of Texas and I think it was Mississippi kind of dropped all their uh, mask mandate and let, let businesses open 100 percent. And I get there's room for debate and science and all that stuff. But even apart from that, uh, I want to just say this is good. The science world has done some unbelievable work to get these vaccines up and running. Uh, and, and now we can get back to a little bit of normalcy, hopefully in the coming months. And so I wanted to start today just by celebrating. We have spent so much time on this show bemoaning everything we've lost, rightfully so, all that we've lost through the COVID-19 pandemic. And, and I just want to take a minute here and, and celebrate and go, okay. Uh, we're not out of the woods yet, but it's coming. I can see the end of the woods. I can see the open field, hopefully in the distance. End of May, we've all got the opportunity for the vaccine and uh, away we go. So I want to start there on a bit in my mind of a celebratory note. And I know there's some of you who uh, want to nitpick about what we're talking about there. That's fine. I'm not up for that right now. Instead, I just want to celebrate what we're talking about. I had another one that just jumped out to me, and this was uh, a different, a couple of different spots on the internet, but I found it at a place called Syracuse.com at Syracuse.com because I quite frankly don't know what to do with this story. It says near perfect Tom Cruise deep fakes raise concerns about technology and security. Have you seen the viral video of Tom Cruise doing magic tricks? Well, it's not really the actor, but it's a certainly a trick. The Times of London reports three videos that use artificial intelligence technology to make a TikTok user look like Cruz have gone viral on social media. The account 
at Deep Tom Cruise already has 11 million combined views, 1 million likes, and 342,000 followers. It's the real thing, the supposed Cruise says, but none of them actually feature Tom Cruise. Uh, a Cruise impersonator told the public uh, to publication Mike that he believes it's another actor named Miles Fisher who resembles Cruise and has done impressions of him in the past. Here's why I don't know what to do with this, that you've got uh, this idea of deep fakes, which refer to media generated and manipulated by uh, artificial intelligence by swapping one person's head or face onto another person's body. Uh, it could come from different sources. Here's here's the danger. Here's the worry for me. And I don't know how you feel about it. We already know the concept of fake news. You already know they can make people sound like somebody else. But now the technology to literally fool you in a video, I think, is at first it's kind of funny when you watch this. But honestly, it's a little bit um, scary because think about this. You're running a political campaign and you want to set up your opponent and make them look bad. And you could use technology like this. And what do you do with that? You, you've you got somebody that you, you could just see how all of this plays out if put in the wrong hands. But this is the technological world that we live in. Uh, and for me, I'm like, man, what in the world do we even do with that? So I'd love to know your opinion. Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Common Good Talk. Well, coming up next, on this Wednesday show, we're going to hear read an article from Michael Frost called The Alphabet of Grace, W is for Weirdos. Michael Frost next here on The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Hey, friends, welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. My name is Brian Fromm, flying solo today on this Wednesday afternoon. Hope that you're having a great day. As we said in the first segment, it feels like spring has sprung a little bit. I get that there's probably a snowstorm sometime in mid to late March that has always rears its head and comes our way. But I'm going to enjoy the sun while it's out. As I said earlier in the week, I'm going to enjoy watching spring training baseball and just uh, looking forward to all things spring. Uh, we are really grateful to those of you who regularly listen to the show, uh, who share the show, who Right back to us, even negative stuff. I had a guy write to me on Facebook yesterday with uh, something not that flattering, but hey, thanks for listening. And, and that's what we want. We want that dialogue. Hopefully, we'll hit a time here when things normalize a little bit where we could go back to uh, even having some call-ins and hear from you callers. But uh, we are glad for those of you who invest your time with us. As I said, tomorrow and Friday, going to be joined again by Aubrey Sampson. So looking forward to having Aubrey back on the show. She always does a great job uh, and is fun to talk to. So I'm alone today, but Aubrey will be with us on Thursday and Friday. Now, there's a guy that Ian and I have talked about often, uh, just a phenomenal speaker, writer, and somebody, quite frankly, who makes you uncomfortable while making you think. His name is Michael Frost or Mike Frost. And at MikeFrost.net, he wrote this, The Alphabet of Grace. W is for weirdos. And so I saw that that headline. I was like, oh, this looks interesting from Frost. Uh, let's see what this has to say, because he, he loves to talk about grace and grace being foundational to who we are as Christians. But this concept of of weirdos, let's let's dig into what Michael Frost has to say here. He writes in 1997, Apple launched its now iconic Think Different advertising campaign featuring black and white footage of groundbreakers like Albert Einstein, Bob Dylan, Martin Luther King, John Lennon, Mahatma Gandhi, Pablo Picasso, and others, and voiced by actor Richard Dreyfus. It's one of the truly great pieces 
of advertising copy ever written. It went this way. Here's to the crazy ones, the misfits, the rebels, the troublemakers, the round pegs in the square holes, the ones who see things differently. They're not fond of rules and they have no respect for the status quo. You could quote them, disagree with them, glorify or vilify them about the only thing you can't do is ignore them because they change things. They push the human race forward. And while some may see them as the crazy ones, we see genius because the people who are crazy enough to think they can change the world are the ones who do. Frost goes on to say everyone who appeared in the Think Different campaign really did epitomize the spirit of the campaign. They broke the rules. They were vilified, but they changed stuff. Dylan, Lennon, Gandhi, Ali, King all drove their contemporaries around the bend. But looking back, we now view them as groundbreakers who left the world as a better place. We all know it's true that crazy people change the world. Think about that line for a second. Crazy people change the world. I wonder if you agree with that. So Frost goes on to say, here's my question. Why isn't there a bit more crazy in Christianity today? And I don't mean crazy as in zany or juvenile, because there's plenty of that. I mean, crazy or weird as in Picasso, Jim Henson, Martha Graham, and Cesar Chavez. I mean, crazy, he writes, as in round pegs in square holes. Could it be that the church has closed its doors to the misfits and rebels and troublemakers? Does the church make space for and foster the contributions of those who see things differently? If Steve Jobs is right and the world is pushed forward by people who break the rules and who have no respect for the status quo, what does that say about the church's vision to change the world? Where are our weirdos, the round pegs in square holes? And Frost says in his book, Creep Christianity Weird, I try to make the case for all Christians that they should be a little weird. So we're going to keep going with this. But I want you to think about that concept for a second, because that's challenging. Frost says that throughout human history, when you look at the people uh, societally who have made the biggest difference, who have brought about the biggest amount of change, oftentimes, not all the time, but oftentimes they are people who thought outside the box. In his language, they were round pegs in a square hole. They were people who kind of pushed the limits. They were the ones that people looked at and said, what's that guy's deal? What's that girl's deal? Can't do things that way. And Frost wants to say that as we as Christians constantly talk about, quote unquote, changing the world, then what is how do we play into this? How do we wrestle uh, with this? He goes on to say the word eccentric comes from a combination of the Greek terms out of and center. When put together, uh, eccentric means out of center. The term gained currency in the late Middle Ages when astronomers like Copernicus dared to suggest that the Earth was not at the center of the solar system. By claiming the Earth, in fact, orbited the sun, Copernicus became the original eccentric. Enter Richard Beck, a professor from Abilene Christian University who pushes the definition of eccentricity a bit further. In his book, The Slavery of Death, Beck takes it to its literal meaning out of center and suggests that an eccentric identity is an identity where the focal point of the self is shifted to God. He says the ego in a kind of uh, Copernicum revolution is displaced from the center and moved to the periphery. The self is displaced being the center of the universe so that it may orbit God. In other words, all Christians who have made God the center and focus of their lives can rightfully be called eccentric. The alternative, Beck says, is what Martin Luther uh, Martin Luther called uh, incurvatus in say the self 
curved inward upon itself with the ego at the center of our identity. It suggests that human sinfulness is rooted in self-focus, self-absorption, and self-worship. It's me at the center. A true conversion to Christ involves displacing me and becoming truly off-center. I find this to be fascinating, friends. We preach this all the time, but oh, how hard is it to live? That we're not just called to be weird, but we're called to take ourselves off the throne. We're called to make ourselves no longer the center of the universe. But Frost says through Richard Beck here, or I should say Richard Beck says here through this Frost article, we are in fact meant to take ourselves off center and put something else at the center, that being God and who he has called us to. And that the the great fight within ourselves is who will be at the center. Man, isn't that so much of Christianity right there? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul. Love the Lord your God with everything you have. Or, or Romans chapter 12, therefore, in view of God's mercy, offer ourselves as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. Th- that it's not any longer about us. That's the beginning of Rick Warren's famous book, Purpose Driven Life. It's not about you. Frost continues, now, of course, that's not how we usually use the term eccentric. When we think that who are off-center, the center we have in mind is usually some cultural or behavioral norm. So eccentric people are those who act in a socially unorthodox way. But Beck continues, eccentric Christianity is a new orbit where the self is displaced and God is found at the center of life. And in this displacement, the Christian begins to act in, quote, strange and unusual ways in relation to the norms of the world. As the King James Version puts it, a Christian, the Christians are a, quote, peculiar people. Today, Frost says, the church in America seems to have treated in its mandate to be eccentric and aimed at a kind of middle-class suburban convention conventionality. We fit in and we often baptize that conventionality by suggesting that God is primarily concerned with order and with us living peaceably with our neighbors. I'm not suggesting we shouldn't be peaceable, but neither should we be indistinguishable from our fine, upstanding, non-Christian neighbors. We are, we are the quote, off-center ones, he says, the weird ones, or at least we should be. And there's so much more to this article. I would encourage you to go check it out at our Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Common Good Talk. But when I read this, I am super challenged to go, who's at the center of my life? Am I a quote unquote eccentric Christian? Not a strange, not, not, not strange for the sake of being strange, but one who has someone or something else at the center, one whose self is off center. Such a fascinating thought there by Michael Frost. And well, we didn't get to even the back half of the article. So go ahead to our Facebook page and read it uh, at Common Good Talk. Well, coming up next at the Gospel Coalition, they wrote this title is great. When my church was washed with butter. What in the world are they talking about? We're going to talk about it next here on the Common Good AM 1160. Hope for your life. Welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. My name is Brian Fromm, flying solo today on a beautiful Wednesday afternoon. Glad to have you with us. Uh, I had a debate going on with somebody earlier today uh, around this topic. What is your favorite fast food restaurant? Uh, and what we realized was that uh, that we we couldn't agree on what constituted a fast food restaurant. Because I said... Uh, I said, uh, 
I, we kind of debated. I kind of landed on Chick-fil-A, not just because I'm a pastor, but because the chicken is good. Uh, but then I had some others. And this person tried to claim that their favorite fast food restaurant was Portillo's. And I said, that is not a fast food restaurant. Their argument was it has a drive through. Uh, you, you just order at a counter. There's no waiter waitress. And so then I said, well, what about Chipotle? What about this? And this person was trying to say all of those types of places are fast food restaurants. And we did not come to a conclusion. I wonder what you think out there, because uh, if Portillo's can be a, be a considered a fast food restaurant, that's going to that's going to take uh, the cake. No pun intended from me. Uh, I, I would put Portillo's and Potbellies and some others above the others. But if it's just a traditional fast food restaurant. I think I'm going. I think I'm going uh, Chick Fil A. I think so. I think it would come right above Culver's. I believe. Anyway, hard hitting news here on the Common Good. I wonder a, what's your favorite fast food restaurant? And b, do you consider Portillo's? Because it's got to be Portillo's if that's a fast food restaurant, right? Like that has to win. Uh, a little Italian beef or something like that, but. Uh, anyway, wondering what you're thinking. That was a good mindless debate me and a buddy were having today. So I thought I'd throw it your way. Well, I wanted to discuss an article from the Gospel Coalition uh, because I love the title. It says this, when my church was washed with butter. It's written by a pastor by the name of Benjamin Verbacek. And I really wanted to jump into this because not only is the title awesome, but I think the message here is really important. So let's dive into this. Uh, He writes, the very weekend before our church shut down last year, which again was a year ago this weekend or so, uh, we hired a new associate pastor. Wow, the weekend before they shut down, he hired a new associate pastor. Spirits were high among our members and momentum, not sorrows like sea billows rolled. A year later, we have more church, we have more church services, so our vibrant, bustling congregation is more dispersed. I coated half our pews with blue painter's tape to block entrance to the rows. Our pastors, staff, and volunteers work harder, but seem to accomplish less. Your pastors probably do, too. As we approach the anniversary of a full year under the various iterations of COVID church, I lament the many losses of connection and normalcy, along with missing sheep, masked services, video preaching, and Zoom Sunday school. I understand it all, but I lament it as, it sh- as we should. In short, I miss the days when my church was washed in butter. Okay, what's he mean? Let's see. This illusion comes from Job's lamentations over the loss of his former blessings. He says in Job 29, 2 and 6, oh, he says, when my steps were washed with butter, the time before those sorrows like sea billows rolled. Maybe this butter metaphor has so captivated me, he writes, because seven years ago, the Lord took away my ability to eat dairy. God didn't give me a dollop of lactose intolerance, but an allergic gut punch that often results in days of crushing sickness. Oh, that stinks. And here, Job, bless his heart, longs for the days when the cream and the fat and the buttery goodness of the Lord oozed all around them. Thus, Eugene Peterson paraphrases the opening lines from this chapter this way in the message. Oh, how I long for the good old days when God took such very good care of me. But the emotion driving Job's laments is not just sadness for the loss of his extravagant prosperity. No, what we might call lament for the loss of mere prosperity. Job lost something virtuous, well-rounded and Godward. He laments losing the days when I, quote, caused the widow's heart to sing or broke the fangs of the unrighteous. And when my children were all around me, the 10 children he and his wife buried in 10 coffins. And chiefly, Job laments the days when he felt God watched over me. Uh, he's going he's gonna to move on now to uh, say this. I asked my family what they missed from church most uh, from before COVID. 
My oldest son said without hesitation, the hot chocolate. Another daughter rejoined, and powdery donuts. These may feel inconsequential in the scheme of things, like melodramatic lament for a stubbed pinky toe. But pastor's kids lamenting the loss of Sunday morning snacks hinted at a greater loss. Our church cafe, formerly a place of fellowship and prayers, hugs and laughter and bustling crowds, now is a cloudy plastic tape uh, tarp draped across the coffee carafes. When we covered our coffee in hot chocolate, we thought it might just keep the dust off a few weeks. It goes unused. It's now been 52 weeks. And not only do uh, my children miss the snacks, but so do the children of the many refugees and immigrants who call church home. My wife said she missed seeing the collection of the offering. We used to pass the plate because we saw it as worship. Now, if people want to give, they direct them to impersonal decorative boxes. We don't hug at the wall. Uh, And so it's going to go on and say more and more. But I I wanted to bring this up before we close it out just to go. What do you miss about your church? If you've been around this show for any amount of time, uh, you know that I am a pastor primarily. That is my day job. I'm the pastor of Four Corners Community Church in Darien, Illinois. And there are a couple things. We we have begun meeting again back in the summertime. We began meeting again, but it's socially distant, uh, less number of people. You got to sign up in advance. You got to wear a mask, everything, the hoops we've all been jumping through. And man, there's some things I miss. I used to, and I still do, stand at the back door and say goodbye to everybody. But before COVID, I did it often with a hug or a hearty handshake or a hand around the shoulders or whatever, an arm around the shoulders, whatever else it might be. Now it's an awkward fist bump or it's in, what what are we doing? Hitting elbows with each or whatever it is, or just a wave from a distance. There is this there's this ache for community. There's this ache for relationship, for, for family that is just not there. I quite frankly miss that more than I even miss all of us singing and being gathered together. Because I know that while I miss that, that at least we're having that in some way. This author goes on to say, yet the hand of the Lord still rests upon our church as it did Job. Even when our cups do not runneth over, God sits with us in the ashes. Our church tried all the options online, in person, with or without mass, less singing, more singing. Some of the sweetest times in the last years were our outdoor services. They allowed for more COVID cautious members to worship in the same services as, shall we say, the less COVID cautious. But we almost didn't even try outdoor services. Uh, Back in May, a few of our leaders tested a layout of chairs on the church's front yard. The consensus was that we could fit 75. By the end of the summer, there weren't 75 people spread out. I had to yell to the back of the lawn filled with 250. The outdoor services often brought humor. Once in the middle of the sermon, a guy putted by, by on a motorized scooter blaring music uh, from his boombox. God also used COVID to change me as a leader. Though it's been more of a death and resurrection, really. Several times I've stood on the edge of quitting pastoral ministry. I've heard that a lot, friends. My toes peeking over the edge. My wife and I don't feel that edge now. I had to change or better parts of me like grains of wheat falling to the ground had to die. In hindsight, I see how aspects of my ministry, identity, identity, and idolatry had braided together into the tight three-chord strand. In the ashes, God scraped away my sin with broken pottery. Uh, he said it hurt worse than anything I ever felt, but we endure it for the pleasure of feeling the stuff peel off. I certainly lament the loss of the good old days, the days before COVID, the days when our churches were washed with cream and the buttery goodness of the Lord oozed all around us. Yet the eyes of faith tell me those days are still today. 
I just find that to be a really helpful article. One talking about the lament, the stuff we've lost, but also pointing to a brighter future, saying there's hope today and there's hope coming. I think that hope in the midst of the lament of COVID-19 is really helpful. A really well-written article there by Benjamin Verbicek. That's Benjamin Verbicek. He's an author in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. When my church was washed with butter. Well, coming up next, uh, someone who's been on the show before, Carl Vader's. Writes this at churchleaders.com, how an unspoken Justin Bieber joke taught me to treat everyone as an image bearer. That's coming up next here on The Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life. My name is Brian Fromm, doing the show by myself today, although... Next hour, we are excited to be joined by Roger Olson. He's a professor of theology at Baylor University and the author of an article about American Christianity and American evangelicalism, where he kind of says he believes it's a failed movement. And he's a historian and a theologian. And I think you're going to be fascinated by that article from Roger Olson. So I'm excited to have him on later in the show. But for the rest of the show, going to fly by myself. Tomorrow and Friday, going to be joined again by guest co-host Aubrey Sampson. She's been on now five or six times, and Aubrey's great. We love having Aubrey uh, on the show with us, and so she will be with us again Thursday and Friday. So Carl Vader's is somebody that we've had on the show before. I love Carl Vader's work because he he actually writes and produces resources for specifically small churches. So he produces resources, it says, for helping small churches survive, or not even survive, to thrive, helping small churches thrive at carlvaders.com. And he invite, he created an online resource called Small Church Pastors Adapt and Recover Kit, uh, which helps pastors, especially in the midst of the COVID-19 pandemic. He has a healthy, he says, small church in Orange County, California, where he's ministered for over 27 years. So we've had him on before. Really enjoy the work by Carl Vaders. And he wrote this at churchleaders.com. How an unspoken Justin Bieber joke taught me to treat everyone as an image bearer. Several years ago, Carl writes, I was preparing a sermon when I thought of a jerk joke that mentioned Justin Bieber. Who hasn't thought of a Justin Bieber joke for an, uh, for a sermon? He goes on to say, the next day while reviewing my notes, I saw the joke and I paused. This was a throwaway laugh about an actual human being, a person made in the image of God. And I was about to use his name to get a cheap laugh in a Sunday morning sermon. Would I tell that joke about someone who was in the room to hear it? I asked myself. Immediately, I knew the answer. Not a chance. It wasn't good natured fun. It had an edge. It was mean. At the time, Justin Bieber was just a teenager. I kind of felt sick about it. See, thankfully, I had the chance to delete it from my notes before before it saw the light of day. It made me wonder how many times I'd done something similar to someone in an offhand conversation without the chance to review it and withdraw it. Since then, I've determined to carefully monitor my speaking and writing to be sure I never speak about a person in a demeaning way. In sermons, blog posts, Facebook pages, conversations, anywhere. Sure, Justin Bieber is one of the most famous people on the planet. He's used to being ridiculed, joked about, and criticized. That's the price of fame. But that should make no difference to me, or maybe it should. As a follower of Jesus, 
Not only do I not have the right to treat another human being badly, I have an extra obligation, Carl writes, not to pile on to someone who's already receiving so much hurtful attention. No amount of adulation or money can balance that ledger in a person's heart. I mustn't treat anyone as anything less than they are, someone created in God's image and loved dearly by him. Their fame doesn't reduce my obligation to treat people with godly love and compassion. Let me pause there because Carl's going to keep going. But what an insightful deal. See, a lot of us, we take celebrities and we just go, whatever, fair game. They make a lot of money. They're celebrities. Uh, and also, Carl could have been like, Justin Bieber's never going to hear this or uh, Person X. But but I think Carl digs this down to a level that I probably wouldn't have gone with it, but I think is important. Uh, at what point for a cheap laugh or even a sermon illustration is ridiculing someone who's either in the public eye or not um, okay? And, and Carl gets to the point here where he says everybody, whether it's somebody in my congregation or whether it be somebody famous that will now never probably meet, but everybody knows, or whether it be the person up the street or the leader of a church up the street or whatever, whoever it might be. Or whether it's somebody I talk about online or a comment I make on my Facebook page or your Facebook page or whatever else it might be, Carl says something really, really important. I mustn't treat anyone as anything less than they are. Someone created in God's image and loved dearly by God. Their fame doesn't reduce my obligation to treat with godly love and compassion. Here's my question for us, folks. This is why I wanted to read it. What would the, what would the result be in the world? If as Christ followers, we regularly treated people in God's image and loved dearly by him, what if we actually live this out where I'm going to interact with my neighbor or that person who kind of bugs me in my church or, uh, you know, the crazy uncle or uh, that person who really bothered you on Facebook and you just want to kind of rail on them, whoever else it might be, person in the office, whatever. Name that person. And what if our chief primary way that we that we uh, interacted with everybody was with a conscious knowledge that this person was created in the image of God? We use the phrase the Imago Dei, the image of God, that every person I interact with, every person I interact with, black and white, Republican, Democrat, rich, poor, man, woman, uh, Cubs fan, Sox fan, whatever. Every person I interact with is created in God's image, in the image of God and loved dearly enough so much that our heavenly father sent his son in order so that that person may find life and forgiveness. So Carl goes on to say, sure, I can still disagree with them. I do so with members of my own family, after all, sometimes with great passion, even anger. And yes, we could share a laugh about someone who isn't in the room to appreciate it as long as it doesn't demean them. But nothing gives me an excuse not to behave with decency and humanity towards everyone. Yes, Carl says, everyone. Not only should I not do this to an entertainer and a throwaway joke, this is also applies to politicians, activists, even heretics. You know, all those quote unquote enemies Jesus commanded us to love anyway, Matthew chapter five. Nothing should change that, not their fame or obscurity, not their beliefs or behavior, not their wealth or poverty, not my anger or sense of humor, not even their attitude towards me and the things I believe. Matthew chapter 7, 23, Matthew 7, 12 says this, do unto others. And Carl adds, doesn't have any loopholes. Do unto others 
doesn't have any loopholes. Friends out there, we need to be convicted by this. Well done, Carl, in this article, because there are no loopholes to this. That somebody that you categorically disagree with politically, like, right, you were wearing a red Make America Great Again hat uh, while while they were putting Biden signs in their yard. You categorically disagree with them. What's it mean for you to treat them in the image of God and as dearly loved by their heavenly father? Uh, The atheist in your office. Who you obviously have great disagreements with. What does it mean to treat them as if as truthfully that they are created in the image of God and truly loved by him? That family member, that, uh, you know, that neighbor, whoever else it might be, that person in your life who you disagree with politically and, um, you know, maybe religiously, maybe in all other ways. What's it mean that they are created in the image of God, the Imago Dei, and that they are clearly and dearly loved by God? And here's the here's the thing. We often talk about what's going to make the church stand out in our culture. And we think, oh, it's this and this. This is the answer. The answer to that question of what makes the church stick out is going to be the church's decency and civility in a world that is indecent and uncivil. Whether, whether it be online and social media, in the yeah. backyard, backyard, in the public square, wherever it might be. And I want you to be challenged by that. I do believe it will be the civility and the decency of the church that will make it shine a light and cause people to go, I want to know more. Tell me more. Great article here by uh, by Carl Vader's How an Unspoken Justin Bieber Joke Taught Me to Treat Everyone as an Image Bearer of God. Well, the first hour is in the books coming up next. Uh, we're going to discuss this, uh, a really cringeworthy sermon that has been making the rounds. And then also, don't be too hasty in your take on the post-pandemic church. Coming up next year on The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Coming up this hour, we're going to talk about the post-pandemic church. And then we're joined by Roger Olson, professor of theology at Baylor University. You're listening to The Common Good. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160. Hope for your life. My name is Brian Fromm. Thanks so much for joining us on this Wednesday afternoon. Really a beautiful day today. Hopefully you've been able to get outside, enjoy the sun a little bit. It's just going to be getting warmer over the coming days to the point that uh, I know weather changes here in Chicagoland really quickly, but they're talking about early next week being mid 60s. Could we even see a 70? Ah, how exciting is that? Baseball's in the air. Spring is in the air. Uh, and and uh, as we talked about in the first hour, hopefully there's coming a day here uh, when the pandemic is behind us. And so we can hold on to that. Well, something we've talked about obviously often on this show is the post-pandemic church. There's coming a day when we are post-pandemic. Uh, we're going to be forever changed. Our churches are changed. We're changed as individuals. Our businesses are changed. Our schools are changed. But we're going to increasingly get back to normalcy as more and more people get vaccinated. As we talked about in the first hour, uh, President Biden yesterday announced that in uh, their estimations, everybody, every American who wants the vaccine should have the opportunity to get vaccinated by the end of May. That's two months earlier than they were first estimating. Like, that's good news. 
It's a light at the end of the tunnel. It reminds us that there is hopefully coming a day where we will be post-pandemic. And with that in mind, at the Gospel Coalition, Trevin Wax wrote an article entitled, Don't Be Too Hasty in Your Take on the Post-Pandemic Church. Don't be too hasty on your take on the post-pandemic church. He says, we're soon to be on the other side of a world-changing crisis, a post-pandemic era, and we wonder what ministry will look like in this new world. Most church leaders wonder if people who were on the periphery of their fellowship have now, quote, fallen away. Or they worry that people closer to the center of their congregations may take advantage of a perceived reset and find another church. Let me pause there. Uh, every pastor is worried about that right now. Uh, if you are a part of a church, uh, let me tell you, uh, your pastor is worried about that. He's worried that people on the periphery will just never hear from again. And she's worried that even people who are in the center now have been away watching on Zoom. They tried out some other churches and they go, you know what? I'm going to go to the church up the road and can I make a suggestion before we dive back into that article? If you're one of those people, uh, at least go tell your pastor, have a conversation. Don't just not show up and also be praying for your pastor and reach out to him or her. And just like, how, is, how are things going? Hey, I'm still around. We're still going to be there. Even if we haven't been there much, we're still going to be there. Have that conversation. Uh, with him or with her. So Trevin Wax continues, as someone who analyzes research about current trends in the church, I recognize the value in helping people understand the context for mission, but I don't want to give the impression that certain trends are inevitable. We should also not assume that just because a certain practice or ministry philosophy is growing, that that is necessarily good. It's wrong to think that just because the church is moving in this direction, you should get with the program, especially if there are biblical reasons to be concerned about the church's direction. There's no shortage of blogs, columns, and articles talking about the future of the church in this era, how everything, quote unquote, has changed, warning pastors to jump on the bandwagon of the latest developments out of the fear of being left behind. And while it's certainly the case that reading our times means we can't be content to serve a post-pandemic world as if we were still in a pre-pandemic era, we should also take care not to adopt ministry philosophies that upend our understanding of ecclesiology, which is the doctrine of the church. Uh, and so he's going to get uh, very much into online church versus the gathering. So under online church, he says, for example, I've read some articles here and there that claim online attendance is just as valid now as in-person and gatherings. COVID has changed everything, they say. Just as the business world is pivoting to remote work, so also the church needs to understand that online worship is the way of the future. He says, to be clear, the ability to receive spiritual sustenance through watching the church service online or joining a small group has been a blessing in this strange season. Churches well do well to step up the professionalism of their digital presence uh, but we shouldn't assume that the trend of moving everything online when it comes to church is positive and healthy or that online and in person are two different but equally valid ways of, quote, doing church. They are not the same. The word ecclesia literally means gathering or assembly, and the New Testament predominant use of the word refers to the local church gathering. To stretch the word gathering to the point that it encompasses online attendees uh, is to take it beyond the breaking point, Wax says, to dismiss the embodied nature of reality and say that we can gather virtually in the same way as we do in person fails to grapple with a key aspect of our humanity. Online connection may be a supplement to in-person gathering, but it doesn't qualify as a substitute. 
And so he's going to go on and talk about, it. he says, make no mistake, the church is God's called out and sent people, but the effectiveness of the church scattered does not happen apart from the energy of the church gathered. Wax wants to say that in COVID, in a pandemic, that online has been a lifesaver. And amen to that. My church wasn't even online before the pandemic. And now we've, like many churches, have had to be able to figure out virtual on the fly. And we've done well with it and at other times not done well with it. Uh, but think about a year ago, how many of us even knew that Zoom existed? But I agree with Wax here, with Trevin Wax, when he says, but let's not fool ourselves to say that the nature of church has now now changed. Church is still the gathered people. And there are going to be outliers of people who still need to gather online, even when this people who can't leave home, people who are sick, obviously. And that's great. I think it will always be a tool, but it will never be a replacement. And here's the uh, here's the thing. You keep hearing people try to make this point. I don't think people view it as a replacement for the most part. The people in my church that I've talked to just can't wait to get back. They want to be together. They might be scared to be together or hesitant to be together, but they want to be together. Wax is going to continue. He says, another idea floating around is that feeling connected to community matters more than the content of the sermon. There's a sense in which that's true as connection and community matter more than if your pastor is the most stellar preacher, but content still matters and it will continue to matter. So why set up a dichotomy in the first place? Connection and community that is grounded in solid contact uh, content. That's the bullseye for everyone. At least it should be, he says. Let's do what it takes to consider our current cultural context and to adapt to this missionary mo- moment. But don't assume that all trends are inevitable or that ministry philosophies that focus on in-person gatherings will fade. The church has been through pandemics before and will likely see the plague again. And while the landscape will certainly be different, and while we can learn a lot from ministry during the season, the truth of God's word proclaimed and the formative power of God's people gathered will endure. Friends, I think this is a really important truth that we need to we need to wrestle with. Uh, the church is going to go back to primarily being a gathered people. And that's a good thing. Some people are there already. Others are not. But a post-pandemic church is not a post-gathering church. There's going to come a day and needs to be a day where while some people still might need to be online, that can't be the primary tool. I believe that wholeheartedly. Community matters and community is best fostered uh, in circles, not on screens. Screens help. They've been a great tool, uh, but they are not a replacement. And so there is coming a day. Uh, we're post-pandemic. We're right now in still, hopefully at the end of the pandemic or getting near the end. But the post-pandemic is coming. And I believe, like Trevin Wax here, that post-pandemic is going to bring with it a reemergence and a a appetite, a thirst for in-person gathering. And again, if you're the person who's like, oh, maybe I'm done with church, let me encourage you, don't be. Just don't be. Uh, you need the gathered body of believers. You need that community. Uh, and there's coming a day where we will all be back together. Well, coming up next, we're thrilled to be joined for two segments by Roger Olson. He's the professor of theology at Baylor University, author of an article about American evangelicalism. Is it a failed movement? We're going to talk to Roger Olson about his article at Patheos next here on The Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life.
Hey everybody, welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. My name is Brian Fromm. Glad to have you joining us today uh, here on a beautiful day in the Chicagoland area. And we are thrilled to be joined uh, for the next two segments by Professor of Theology at Baylor University, Roger Olson. Roger, thanks so much for joining us today. Well, thank you. I'm glad to be with you. And I'm sure that my seminary at Baylor University would be unhappy if I didn't mention George W. Truett Theological Seminary is the seminary on the campus at Baylor. Perfect. I actually got a chance to I got a chance to visit a friend one time at Baylor when I was in college. And what a beautiful campus you guys have down there. Uh, It really was wonderful. Roger, before we get started and, and jump in specifically to the article I want to talk about, uh, one thing we'd love to have our guests do is just let them introduce our, their, themselves to our listeners just so they can get to know you a little bit. Yeah, I'm happy to do that. So um, as you said, I'm Roger Olson. Uh, I've taught theology, Christian theology at three Christian universities. Oral Roberts University is where I began almost 40 years ago now. I wow. taught there for two years, and then I taught at Bethel University. Uh, it wasn't university when I taught there, but we'll call it Bethel University in Minnesota, mm-hmm. and uh, that's the new name of it. And now I've been at Baylor for 22 years. Wonderful. Uh, and again, we, we're discussing your article. You wrote at Patheos, American Evangelical Christianity, a failed movement with a question mark. You're asking the question, is it a failed movement? Before we get into kind of the the current state of evangelicalism, which we we love to talk about here on the show, uh, you've obviously done a ton of research and a ton of study. Help our people understand the roots of evangelicalism. How old is it? What, what are kind of the starting, the seeds and the roots of it? Well, of course, I, as an evangelical, I would say it began with the New Testament. <laughs> and, uh, you know, there's all, there have always been evangelical Christians, but what we call evangelicalism or evangelical Christianity in America really has its roots, especially in the Great Awakenings of the early 1700s, uh, that really also grew out of the Pietist awakenings in Europe uh, before that, and at the same time. So people like Jonathan Edwards in America and John Wesley and George Whitfield, who went back and forth between Britain and, and America, mm-hmm. that revival of the 1740s really seemed to launch Uh, what we call modern evangelicalism. Mm. Now, the American evangelical movement that I'm talking about and that I research and write about really began in the 1940s with the emergence of the National Association of Evangelicals, about 50 denominations or so that came together and formed kind of a a umbrella movement together and kind of a coalition, you might say. Mm -hmm. And Billy Graham eventually emerged as the figurehead of that, although it certainly was, you know, not all about him. Uh, but for the 40s and 50s and 60s and into the 70s, this coalition of Bible-believing, um, Jesus-loving, conversion-preaching, uh, evangelicals, cross-centered and, and missional, uh, was a strong, unified movement. I mean, there were cracks in it, and there were differences of opinion about details of doctrine, but I grew up in it, and, and you know we had evangel- we had Pentecostals, we had Fundamentalist Baptists, we had all kinds of denominations that came together not to unite as one denomination, but to right. cooperate as one movement. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was a wonderful thing to be a part of. Youth for Christ uh, was like was part of that, and that really shaped me in the 1960s when I was a teenager. And uh, so I remember a time when evangelicals had great gatherings. Mm. And of uh, all different denominations, you could you had all the way from five point Calvinists to Nazarenes and 
and Pentecostals and even some quirky kind of denominations, certain Adventists, not Seventh-day Adventists, but mm-hmm. other Adventist groups. And you know, we just agreed to overcome those differences as we came together for mission. Yeah. And I think that's gone now. I, I'm really sad about it. It breaks my heart that we don't really meet together and cooperate and work together as we once did. Oh, that's a great background. And like you said, uh, you'd said in the article, while when I now stand and look around at American evangelical Christianity and look back to what it was in the past, I'm tempted to say it is now a failed movement. You, you touched on as to why you said that. Could you unpack that more? Why? What tempts you to say yeah. and look around at us right now and go, I, I think it's a failed movement? So two things. One, I just touched on a little mm-hmm. bit that I don't really see evangelicals uh, across denominational boundaries coming together. Uh, we've kind of fallen apart. Uh, we don't. There are evangelicals who don't even talk to each other anymore because mm-hmm. of what I would consider secondary doctrinal matters and secondary interpretations of the Bible. And uh, people are angry at each other. People consider themselves leaders and spokesmen for evangelicals in America. Some of them just don't want to be with each other in the same room. And -hmm. I think that's really, really sad. Um, So kind of a disintegration of the movement, I think. There's no center of the movement anymore. Uh, there, there's still Christianity Today magazine, and there, you know, like this uh, coalition of Christian colleges and universities, but... Most people don't know about those anymore. There's, you know, there's not really the glue that there once was holding the evangelical movement together. But also, when I look back at the evangelical churches that I grew up in and that I've spoken in during my lifetime, and, and I've been around a lot in evangelicalism, uh, my name was on the masthead of Christianity Today. I was the editor of Christian Scholars Review and so forth. I've noticed a real change of what I call ethos. Um, mm-hmm. Back in the day, you might say, uh, you went to church in any evangelical church in America and expected once in a while to hear a convicting sermon about sin and repentance. Mm-hmm. And I haven't heard that in years. Interesting. Yeah. Now, I'm not saying it never happens, but it certainly doesn't happen as much as it once did. And, you know, there were expectations. If you claim to be a disciple of Jesus Christ and an evangelical Christian, whether you use that word or not, uh, your church expected you to, you know, keep your marriage together and not just mm. let it fall apart and go into divorce over irreconcilable differences. And now it seems to me like within evangelical churches, divorce is as common in them as it is outside of them. Yeah. And we don't really hear a lot about the expectations that we once thought Jesus Christ held us to as evangelical Christians. Oh, that's that's convicting. Let me ask you this, uh, and I'm so thrilled you're going to stay for a second segment because there's so much to talk about here. Uh, but at some point in our in our nation's history, recent history, evangelical became a political term as much as it became a religious term. Help us understand when that happened and what the effect has been of that. Yeah, uh, as a historian, a, a church historian, I've studied that, and I don't think there's any easy answer to that. Just reflecting back on my own life, I remember when Jimmy Carter was elected president and Time magazine in 1976 at the end declared the year of the evangelical. And Mm. we evangelicals were shocked and surprised that Time magazine even knew who we were, you know. Then soon after that, Ronald Reagan became president. And all of a sudden, a lot of evangelical leaders switched their allegiance from Jimmy Carter to to, uh to Ronald Reagan and his, his policies, and of course mm-hmm. he catered to the evangelical community very, very much. 
And I think that a lot of evangelical leaders then kind of uh, switched over allegiance, not from the Democratic Party. They, they never were, uh, you know, dedicated to any party. But all of a sudden, the Republican Party became very important to a lot of evangelical leaders. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I know why. It was about abortion and homosexuality and some issues like that. Um, but it seems like, you know, they used to have a saying in, in Great Britain that the Tory, the conservative party, uh, or, or rather the Church of England was the Tory party at prayer. Mm. And it seems like evangelicalism has kind of become the Republican party at prayer, yeah. but not totally. I mean, there are many, many exceptions to that. Yeah. And partly, I think this is a creation of the media. I think the media has really tried to build an image of evangelical Christians as almost like right-wing nutcases or yeah, something. Yeah, and yeah. I don't feel like it's realistic. I think we've been smeared by the media. Oh, that's really good, Roger. I'm so grateful for this. This has been really helpful. I'm thrilled to be joined by Roger Olson. He's the professor of theology at Baylor University uh, and the author of the uh, book we want to talk about later called The Essentials of Christian Thought. But he is helping us through his article entitled American Evangelical Christianity. Is it a failed movement? And Roger, as we were talking about the evangelical movement and the history of it and and where we're at now, uh, I, I guess I the main question overhanging this here is, do you think there's hope? Do you think that it could be reformed and changed or or do you think there's going to be something else that replaces it? What do you think the future holds for the evangelical movement? Well, let me start by saying that I'm not the son of a prophet. And I'm, not <laughs> I'm always hesitant to predict the future because as a historian, I look back and I see how people predicting the future have usually been wrong. And so mm-hmm. I'm hesitant to predict the future. But it seems to me like what we have in America today that still gives us hope is that we have many, many evangelical churches and many organizations. Now, unfortunately, many of them are dropping the word evangelical because of the way that the media has smeared it and made mm-hmm. it hard for many of us to call ourselves that without being labeled something politically. Uh, but there's, there's still a very lively group, not so much a movement anymore, but you know, disparate groups, churches here and there, everywhere I go around the country, whether it be small towns, cities, and large metro areas, there are evangelical churches. But what I don't see is them really cooperating very much with each other as they once did. Like every city used to have a, an evangelical ministers association. Hmm. I don't see that very yeah. much anymore. I don't really hear about that. When I was in seminary uh, in an upper Midwest city, uh, west of Chicago, um, there was a strong, in that town, there was a very strong minister, evangelical ministers association that did things like put on uh, a really Christian baccalaureate service for high school graduates because oh, the, great, yeah. you know, the high schools had dropped the baccalaureate service. So we have, they put it on and they put on uh, Thanksgiving services, you know, where churches would come together and worship on Thanksgiving morning, and they put on Easter mm-hmm. sunrise services and special events, hosted evangelists and and Christian bands like Petra. I promoted mm-hmm. one of the first Petra concerts. Oh, that's awesome! When I was in seminary, yeah, yeah, when they were not very well known yet, and yeah. they would be surprised to hear me say that because they wouldn't remember me, but uh, <laughs> they, they wanted to come. And I, it was a Youth for Christ event, and I was uh, one of the leaders of the local Youth for Christ group. And I said, hmm, never heard of you. Yeah, come. And they took so a free will offering. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. That's great. That doesn't, that doesn't happen as much anymore. Uh, you know, where is Youth for Christ? Uh, you know, it's just not as big a thing as it was when I was a teenager. And it was something yeah. that held us together across denominational lines. 
Yeah. Yeah. I wonder you're, you're teaching in a seminary right now. So you, you've got younger students. We often read about the next generation and what is it going to look like? And I, I just wonder around this topic of American evangelicalism, what are you hearing from college kids and seminary students? What, what are their opinions and what are they saying about evangelicalism? I would say those that don't align themselves, especially with conservative politics, don't like the term evangelical anymore because the media has connected it so closely with that. And so if they don't see themselves as really supportive of uh, what what we would consider right-wing politics or conservative politics, they're dropping the word evangelical, which I have not. I refuse to do that because Mm -hmm. for me, It has nothing to do with politics. Being evangelical for me has nothing to do with politics. It's a spiritual, theological set of commitments, beliefs, and a certain spirituality centered around conversion to Jesus Christ. Um, So I'm sad about that, that so many of my students and other students that I know around the country don't really want to be labeled evangelical anymore. Mm And that breaks my heart because, you know, and many of them press me and say, why do you consider yourself an evangelical? That does not mean you are. And then they say something about politics and I go, no, it doesn't (laughs) have anything to do with politics. It's hard to convince them. It's really hard to convince them because the media has built up this image that if you're an evangelical, you're a person who is against things. Yes. Oh, that is such a good way to put it. Absolutely. I do. Before we are done with you here, and it's, again, so grateful for your time. Uh, you did write a book, amongst many other books you've written in 2017, called The Essentials of Christian Thought, Seeing Reality Through the Biblical Story. And I think it's a really important book. Can you just help our people understand uh, what is that book about and kind of why it was that you wrote that book? Yeah, it goes back to my doctoral work uh, as a Ph.D. student at Rice University in the religion department. There I had an evangelical professor of philosophy who was very biblically committed. His name was John Newport, and um, he uh, had a seminar that I took about what he called biblical metaphysics, meaning uh, the Bible's worldview, the worldview of the Bible. And he Mm -hmm. believed that there was implicit in the Bible, a kind of Christian philosophy that needs to be drawn out about reality, about the nature of reality. And his his line was, and I, I accepted it, that we Christians have often bought other philosophies and brought them into our Christianity. And not that they can not that they can never be helpful, but but the Bible has its own philosophy. Uh, but it's not on the surface. It's kind of below the surface. It's what all the biblical authors inspired by God uh, assumed about reality, things like there's one ultimate reality, and that's God. And our purpose as human beings is to glorify Him and enjoy Him forever. And those kinds of things that have been drawn out later, uh, but are there, implicit in the Bible. And so I wanted to write a book based on that seminar that I took with him and the authors that he had us read to try to give to readers um, who are interested a philosophy of the Bible. There is, there is a Christian philosophy embedded in the Bible. It just needs to be brought out and explained. Well, that's really good. Again, that book is called The Essentials of Christian Thought, Seeing Reality Through the Biblical Story. It's, it came out in 2017 and is well worth your read. Uh, Roger, as we let you go, this is kind of a big question, and we've been touching on it this whole time, but I would love to just ask it this way. Uh, you teach students. You, you are passionate about evangelicalism. You've been steeped in it. Uh, are you hopeful? Are you hopeful for the evangelical church going forward? And if so, what gives you that hope? Or if not, you know, maybe why do you not feel hopeful at all? 
No, my hope is in God, and mm-hmm. I think God will bring something new about. I, I think the evangelical movement that I grew up in probably is gone and is not ever going to come back. But I believe that God always has uh, people waiting in the wings and people he's going to raise up to uh, renew his church. And so I look forward to that, but I don't know exactly what that's going to look like. Mm. That's a, that is well put. And uh, Roger, uh, again, before we let you go, where can people find you? Where can they read more of your stuff? Do you have a website, social media? Where can people yeah. go looking for you? So I have a blog. It's mm-hmm. at www.patheos.com. That's P-A-T-H-E-O-S.com forward slash blogs forward slash Roger Eolson altogether. And that is that is the blog where we found this American yeah. Evangelical Christianity, a failed movement. I have so enjoyed this conversation, Roger. I'm so grateful for your time as you're running from classes and Zoom calls and such. So thanks for your generosity. We really appreciate it. You're welcome. Yep. You're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. everybody. Welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. My name is Brian Fromm, flying solo today, going to be joined tomorrow and Friday here with uh, Aubrey Sampson. Aubrey has been with us a couple times and is gracious enough to join us again on Thursday and Friday. Thrilled for that. Looking forward uh, to, again, some time with Aubrey. Uh, But I've really appreciated you being with us on this Wednesday. Hopefully you're looking forward uh, to a good evening and we're starting to make our way towards the weekend. It's why we call Wednesday Hump Day. Uh, making our way towards the weekend. Well, uh, I would like to end the show every day, especially since we did the pandemic and we're in the midst of the pandemic, I should say, uh, wanting to start uh, end each show with some good news, some inspiration, some challenge, just something to get us thinking. And I found this story at the Christian Post that I want to read to you. It just is entitled this. Tom Hanks's son, Chet, says being, quote, touched by God led him to convert from atheism. Actor and musician Chester Hanks, better known as Chet, and the son of Academy Award-winning actor Tom Hanks and Rita Wilson, described his conversion from atheism after being touched by the hand of God. Hanks, who has starred in recurring roles on TV shows such as Empire, made an appearance on the Impulsive Clips podcast where he opened up about a time in his teens that his famous parents sent him away to a wilderness camp because of his bad behavior. The 30-year-old said it was during that time in his young life that he realized God was real. At age 17, Hanks spent 12 weeks at a camp in a remote area in Utah, filled with rage and far removed from civilization. The then-professing atheist said it was a, quote, day hike that changed his life. I went off and sat on the edge of this cliff and was just looking out at the view, he said. As I was looking out at that view and was looking at where I'd been from an elevated perspective, because I'd been stuck in this desert for 12 weeks and it just looked ugly and boring and there was nothing to look at. But now I'm looking at it from this elevated perspective of the top of this mountain. Hanks revealed that he was so overcome by the beauty surrounding him, looking out 360 degrees as far as his eyes could see that there was a not a speck of humanity for miles. So I'm looking around and I'm overcome by emotion. It felt like I was touched by the hand of God. It was at that moment God revealed himself to me, he testified. All that anger and that hate and that resentment flipped. It inverted to be infinite hope, gratitude, peace, and love. It just flipped on a dime like that. And I was so overcome by emotion. I just sat at the edge of that cliff and I wept. I wept for an hour, uncontrollable weeping for like an hour. It didn't cease, but tears of joy. Tears of everything 
feeling every emotion at once, all the pain and all the joy, he says. Hanks has admitted he struggled with drug and alcohol addiction in his teenage years. The podcast host asked him if this experience he encountered at the time was equivalent to a high from drugs. And Hanks says it wasn't similar at all. Any experience from drugs doesn't even come close to this, he says. It was at that moment, that birth of my spiritual life then, that I was overcome. I knew, okay, uh, this is, there's something else out there. There's a higher power. There's this higher intelligence because it felt like I just tapped me on a shoulder. Uh, if anybody that sees this struggles with addiction, feel free to reach out. He says, thank you all for your love and support. God is real. He wrote on Instagram. Uh, and so it goes on to talk about uh, more and more. His parents are part of the Greek Orthodox Church. And uh, I, I brought that up. And it doesn't even say that he ends up becoming a Christian or that he's following Jesus. It talks about his spiritual life. But I, I, I found that just really fascinating, right? We talk about the book of Romans, talking about creation testifying to our God. That, that creation itself testifies. I wonder if you've ever had a moment like that. I'm actually in a couple of weeks here. My wife and I are bringing our kids for a little vacation. We're going out to the Grand Canyon. And, and, and that was one of those moments for me where you stood the first time I ever went to the Grand Canyon. You stand at the Grand Canyon or at Niagara Falls and you just have this awe. I think that's such an important word that we have lost in our vernacular. Awe. I think that worship of God begins with an experience of awe or a realization of awe. And I remember that moment looking out over the Grand Canyon. There was also a moment when I was in high school. I remember being outside in a field. We were on like, I think, a, a church youth retreat. And somehow I found myself alone out in this field looking up into the sky. And I remember laying on my back and there was no lights around. So you, it wasn't like it all faded. It was just stars everywhere. And I remember just being overwhelmed by the vastness of the stars that I was looking at and the beauty of creation and it pointing me very vividly in that moment to the hand of God and going, yeah, you know what? All these things I've been taught, there, there is something about the majesty and the awe-inspiring nature around me that points to my heavenly father. It's not enough that, that we just go, oh, yeah, creation's beautiful. No, no. It points us to a God who loves us, who sent his only son, Jesus Christ, uh, so that we may have life. Uh, and, and I think uh, that, that that is a reminder for us because sometimes we can get so lost in our head, in our head of just like, I have to understand everything. I have to have every answer. I have to have everything buttoned up. But sometimes the answer is to go lay on your back out in the field. And just see God's creation and be reminded again that the God of this creation, when you watch TV and you see the Mars rover, right? The God who created all of this, that he loved me enough, that God so loved the world, that God so loved me enough that he sent his only son so that I may have forgiveness. I may have life. That is overwhelming. And as I read this story of Chet Hanks again, it was again a wonderful reminder that God is calling people to himself, that we don't have to have all the answers, that you don't have to have everything figured out, that you don't, uh, you're never, you might be driving in your car right now or listening on the podcast code, God could never love me. And I would tell you this, the Bible tells us while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Not once we got past our sin, while we were yet sinners, that for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and that we can hold on to that, that while we were yet sinners, 
that the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Like we can hold on to that and be amazed. So I would encourage you today, go for a walk, uh, go sit out back, do something that will remind you of, of the awe inspiring uh, nature of who God is, and then be reminded of what he has done for you. Uh, and I think that that every now and then, sometimes we can get so in our heads. Sometimes the good news can become old news for us, and that can never be the case. So I thought this article, uh, this story was good to remind us uh, that God is enormous, that he's awe-inspiring, but that he loves you so much that he sent his son. Glad that you joined us today here on The Coming Good. Again, Aubrey Sampson's going to join us again tomorrow and Friday. I thought I'd end again like we did the other day out of the book of Jude, a little doxology for us. Now to him who's able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Really glad you joined us today on The Common Good. Join us again tomorrow from 4 until 6. My name is Brian Fromm, and you've been listening to The Common Good here on AIM 1160. Hope for your life.